Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM, brought to you by Navarra Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am your host, James Butler, and I'm very happy to welcome to the studio this week Nina Power, whose work, not least the book One Dimensional Woman, but many, many other things besides, will be known to many listeners of the show and whose current work involves, among other things, the idea of decapitalism, which we'll be exploring today. Nina, welcome back to the show. Thanks, James. It's been a while. <laughs> it has. I'm very glad uh, you've, you've joined us today. Um, decapitalism is a word that has many resonances. Those include not only a, a thoroughgoing opposition and resistance to capitalism, but the image of decapitation, the image par excellence of revolution. Um, but as well, perhaps the suggestion that we need not only oppose capitalism, but decapitalize the fabric of our social relations themselves. In this sense, it's also uh, a polemic against some recent left tendencies, which view both technological products of capitalism and the state itself as politically neutral entities which can be taken over and turned to good ends by a newly ambitious left. But we will come to that. Um, so let's begin with thinking, I guess, about how uh, how we think about capitalism. Um, its historic image owes, I, I think, a lot to the proliferation of industrial capitalism's infrastructure, so railways, telecommunications, uh, cables, power grids, and so on, and, you know, pushing into new frontiers, ever rapacious, ever more consuming. Um, what do you think is the dominant way of picturing capitalism at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things, the way we think about it is often to take uh, too uncritically capitalism's own image of itself. And I think this is one of the things that I was, was, was anxious about. So I think particularly this image of a kind of like, everything's kind of electronic, there's this kind of electric grid over the whole globe in which everything is a kind of flow, you know, regardless of whether it's sort of people or goods or uh, what have you. And I think uh, this that there's somehow it's both kind of exciting it's electric it's uh it's never ceasing it never sleeps um and yeah and then there, there's there are no borders which of course there are many many borders right and this i think that kind of fantastic image of this sort of globalized uh capital is very seductive like it's deliberately seductive and it's also strangely immaterial like capital's own image of itself mm. in terms of like um i don't know high frequency trading and so on and that that kind of uh you know, empty image of itself as mm. if it's not also violence, dead bodies, you know, accumulated and compacted violences of all kinds. Mm -hmm. So capital has pulled a kind of great vanishing act uh, over the course of its kind of, uh, you know, reconception as, 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 as flow, as immaterial kind of uh, uh, relations. Uh, and against this, you, you, you would suggest that uh, there is... Uh, the, the the old picture of capital that the that involves actual bodies that involves actual physical labor that involves industrial production uh, has not only not gone away but main, you know remains the the kind of main way of thinking about capital. So how did it pull off the vanishing act? Yeah, I mean, I think through partly through a kind of technology and a kind of fantasy of its own relation to technology and then the way in which, you know, for, for people in the West primarily, but, you know, other places too, that, you know, that somehow communication itself is the the stuff of capital mm. somehow mm. you know not only the the type of thing it, it makes or is involved in but the kind of thing that produces value which isn't you know 
<laughs> exactly accurate. But nevertheless, you know, this fantasy of the kind of knowledge economy or the creative economy and, and so on. Um, and the idea that this 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 fantasy that all work is moving uh, towards kind of immaterial mm-hmm. um, uh, labour of, of some kind. And, you, you know, it, when we're talking about these things, it's very difficult sometimes to get a handle on whether we're describing something in order to critique it or, or whether we are pointing to something that we think is actually mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose I wanted to, yeah, it was in the relation to this question of post-capitalism, which is a phrase, I guess, that's being used a lot by like left accelerationists, but Paul Mason, um, but also people like Wolfgang Streak and people who are thinking about whether the uh, demise of capital capitalism is inevitable um, and that, in a sense, we should be thinking about what comes after. And But I was a bit worried about some of the post-capitalist discourse, not least because I think it presupposes uh, too much. It's maybe a little bit op- too optimistic. But wanting to preserve that moment of like anti-capitalism mm-hmm. too and thinking about this in terms of the actions on the ground so particularly in the 90s and and some of the you know the images we might have of like the battle of seattle or, or kind of confrontations yeah. that both involve the state and capital so it's you know where those actions are basically you know seeing the state and capital together mm-hmm. and i think sometimes like there's a, too much dissociation between thinking of capital as this sort of separate thing and then forgetting about the state, the state as mm. repressive state apparatus and border control, police, courts. Yeah, yeah. so uh, let's, uh, let's unpack it a bit. So there, there are other than... So let's, let's assume that the, so the dominant image of capital, of capitalism, is this kind of network sense of flows, which I, I agree with. Um, now, anti-capitalism has you know, typically thought of itself, you know, as locked in a kind of mutually determined antagonism. Um, So where the forms of class struggle, um, or anti-capitalist resistance, whatever phrase you want to choose, um, are are kind of shaped by and themselves shape uh, the form of capitalism. So do you see the the rise of of this kind of networked, decentered, flow-based image of capital as having had a kind of deleterious effect on the way in which anti-capitalists think about how they should or how they do resist? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I suppose I just want to raise it as a, you know, a possible critique. Mm. You know, and there there are limits to the kind of antagonistic model too. You know, I mean, if if you see yourself as mirroring the state in some ways or that you're locked in a battle, you know, but then you're not kind of thinking about another way of organising. I mean, I don't think that's actually true in practice of anyone who's an anti-capitalist at all. But just if we're thinking about the level of, of images and how you, you know, how we visualise capitalism, mm. as, we, as we're saying, you know, perhaps the, there is something there that you end up in these kind of street confrontations. Mm. And then perhaps, you, you know, I suppose the critique would be, I mean, the left accelerationist critique of folk politics, that this is too local. This is, you know, this remains uh, lacking in a kind of abstraction. You know, it's not at ease with these global flows, this model of capital and and all of those sorts of things. And I, I don't agree with that because I think people are, you know, when they're protesting at refugee camps, they have a very, very clear picture of the global flows if you see Mm -hmm, what i mean they're mm -hmm. just different global flows right but there are they're all completely linked you know the relationship between war and capitalism and and the refugee crisis for example um so i wanted to like preserve that the anti-capitalist idea i suppose and and to protect it against those sorts of Mm. critiques i mean i I do think there is yeah i i I would agree that that in the conversation about anti-capitalism there is often a movementist straw man right so the uh, the idea that uh, people are, are locked into a kind of purely 
symbolic kind of demonstrative struggle um you know it comes from a caricature as, as you've kind of alluded to of the of the sort of uh anti-capitalist sort of summit hopping protest of which there are legitimate critiques right mm-hmm. um uh but uh but which seem uh <laughs> it seems like a very particular historical moment that actually like uh you know if it ever really was like that then the critiques have already had some purchase and are, and and people have changed the way they conceive of their opposition to to capitalism um i mean a lot of these critiques it always seems to me run the risk of saying ah you oppose neoliberalism but you are yourself neoliberal because you <laughs> uh you know you you don't have a kind of static uh, kind of kind of historically static identity as um you know the classic uh, um, industrial labourer, or uh, you know, and so on, and so on, uh, or, or you relate to the labour movement differently um, than, than, say, your predecessors did thirty or forty years ago. Um, I do think there's something, however, useful there to to point out that obviously resistance subjects emerge, you know, uh, you know, within neoliberalism, they emerge within a form of capitalism that does put um, huge emphasis on uh, communicative potential, on uh, presentation, on kind of uh, uh, fluidity, on uh, of, of uh, you know identity of uh, uh, of, of you know, labour, uh, and and that those are the conditions in which we actually have to work. Um, so so basically, what I'm saying is that I don't think there's much substance to that that criticism when it when it involves a, a desire to return. Uh, to something that that is, as far as I can tell, not necessarily easily returned to. Um, but I guess when I think about contemporary anti-capitalism, I, I, I wonder, you know, is it notable that often these seem to be kind of partial anti-capitalisms? They're not, um, they're, they're different from historical anti-systemic movements. In that they don't necessarily propose systemic alternatives in the same way that, say, uh, the, the classic communist movement would have done. Yeah, I mean, I think this question of of who or what the subject is, you know, the subject of history or, you know, the revolutionary subject or so on, I mean, is, a, is an ongoing kind mm. of uh, question and, and problem. And, I mean, it's interesting, one thing about the kind of anti-capitalist movement that I think some of the post-capitalist thinkers were also uh, very critical of is, is, is perhaps is moralism, mm. you know, or it's perceived moralism, let's say, the idea that you can be a better or a worse person under capitalism, you know, that your choices as a consumer or the, the way you choose to live your life actually has a relation to a, po- a bigger politics, you know, and in, and in place of that, then we have this kind of, well, you know, perhaps, oh, well, we're all complicit, you know, capital is so, so much bigger than us, you know. It, and I think what this ends up in, there's a very interesting essay about Aria Dean that just came out yesterday um, on black accelerationism. She's looking at uh, the accelerationism in relation to, to race, but really in, in relation to this question of the subject and who is the, the human that's presupposed or not presupposed by accelerationism. And, and is accelerationism, you know, obviously in its Nick Landian formation, is the total elimination of the human, right? It's the, you know, the flows of capital are, you know, the most destructive, therefore the most beautiful, you know, we must chase until the ends of the earth until everyone is dead and, and factories are making cans of air for nobody and, you know, this sort of thing. And, um, you know, as opposed to how then do you, if you are an accelerationist, how then do you position the human? And then who has been positioned as the human and who hasn't? Mm-hmm. You know, whose who's labour, whose life has been kind of counted in the first place? You know, and, and it's very interesting in the essay where she she talks a lot about Kojo Eshin's work and kind of a sort of inhumanism that, that has a tie to, to blackness because it's a recognition of the lack of, you know, human humanity mm. 
um, given to that position. And it, you know, it, but it really points out that that actually this this question, although it's maybe put to one side when we think about post-capitalist ideas, it doesn't go away, and you can't avoid it in a way unless you go too far down the sort of right accelerationist thing, mm. and you, you're too seduced by, I suppose, the Im- like these images of capital that has yeah. of itself. Yeah. You know that we are dissipated. Yeah, I mean, I so I wonder what it is that is because I, you know, there are obvious insufficiencies in the accelerationist account, but I think your point about moralism allows us to ask, you know, what it is that is actually attractive about the accelerationist uh, model of 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 a anti-capitalist politics, um, you know, because it, because there seems to be like at least a couple of forms of left accelerationism. One is one kind of seeks in technology the basis of a kind of natural supersession of capitalism. So as part of technology's kind of emergent um emergent properties that you one reaches a kind of post capitalist state. And there's there sort of bits and pieces of negri that are used to to argue this. Um or it it, it becomes a much more kind of in, in some senses kind of Leninist uh thing about the seizure seizure mm-hmm. that was not a way of pronouncing that but, <laughs> um, about the seizure of of the technological structure of capitalism yeah. and then you somehow make that communist <laughs> yeah well i think that's that's why i wanted to try and think yeah the state and capital together at the same time mm. like as difficult as that is i suppose but to recognize i mean particularly in the age of austerity where you know you have this fantasy uh well projected by the <laughs> the government that it's becoming as a smaller state and you know this is good for business and obviously that's not at all what's going on you just have the total destruction of public goods welfare mm. states everything from libraries to forests to anything you know that has a social public um, dimension uh, and you but you have the kind of ever ongoing project of enclosures privatization uh securitization but this this sort of minimization of the state's function as, as like quote unquote the good state or the welfare state is completely compatible and in fact is compatible with the expansion of the repressive state so the state in its form as police prisons uh, refugee camps border control you know all of those uh you know forms of social control where there isn't there's no public space there's a, you know everything is securitized everything is you know and so i think you know you can't ignore that that's what the state is you know and ever increasingly so um, and then how do you fit that with that kind of global capital mm, image, mm. you know, like, and I think that's right. I think one of the, the the issues is that if you think that it's it's possible to take over the state and make it nice, you know, this is, I mean, you can see the temptation, right? I mean, mm. we think about it in, in relation to Corbyn, think yes. about it in terms of kind yes. of, you know, the socialism of, uh, you know, substantial uh, proportion of the British public and the British, you know, people are split, you know, in this absolutely... Uh, extreme way you know mm. they really really are and, and and something like brexit and everything around that shows that i think you know but i think if we if we're thinking about that seriously what it would actually mean then to have a socialist in mm. power then what what are the implications then for yeah. for for security for borders yeah. for prisons you know all that like and it seems that that debate is is a bit neglected in the rush, in the kind of like, well, we can take over these platforms, we can, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I agree. And I think I think the emphasis on the violence of the state and and the fact that that is, you know, that's not 
you know, a, a negligible question it is important. And, and in fact, the interweaving of capitalism with particularly the, 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 the form the state takes during the course of the 20th century, right? So the, the rise of the welfare state, um, which, you know, is a disciplinary model as well as being a redistributive one. And that's a really unusual transformation, right? Yeah. In, in terms of kind of the history of the state, that you know, it's a blip. It's, it's, it does. It feels like a cesura, right? Like it yeah. feels, it feels like a very, very particular constellation of social forces brought it about, and those forces are changing. Um, and that actually, the, the question of how you defend that, we haven't managed to answer it over the course of the, the past decade, really, when we've been struggling to defend it, and 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 even you know, and and we've only ever managed to do it partially. Um, so that question, you know, of, of whether the the, the velvet glove over the iron fist is getting ever more ragged, I think is is is, <laughs> is an important one, right? Yeah. Um, but the iron fist was still always there. And that's that's the other that's the difficult bit, I think. Because you because yeah, I mean th- that question of the current conjuncture is is I find very difficult. And it, it, you know, it often falls to those of us who who come from uh you know a, a far left background to be the sort of uh, unfortunate cold water uh, to say, you know, okay, well, there is this institutional turn in, in the left in England, in, in England especially, I think. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know, and the Labour Party does have all these intimacies with the state. Um, and, you know, to what extent, you know, do, does that involve a shelving of some of the commitments of anti-capitalism or a kind of truce with the state? Um, you know, do we end up back in the question of whether revolutionary reformism is possible? Yeah, I mean, I take you know your point about the welfare state is, is very well made, and I think you know this this kind of paradox where you have people who are in a sense very critical of states, or whether they're anarchists, or whether they're committed to the withering away of the state in one form or another. You know, actually paradoxically defending the last remnants of the state in the sense that mm. you know there is an image of welfare and protection because we don't want people to starve, and we don't want them to die. You know, and, and in a sense, that kind of urgency forces then a certain kind of politics in the context of, of a much more rapacious and violent opposition, if you see what I mean. But yeah, of course, the welfare state, you know, is, is not some glorious socialist power. You know, it's a paternalistic model that depends upon, you know, resource extraction from the rest of the world. It's part of, you know, a kind of historical British colonial project. It's, it's you know, it's... Uh, redistribution in the smallest possible sense, if you mm-hmm. like, and it is a, diff- a particular kind of yeah. compact, which now, in retrospect, does look like a blip. Actually, you know, in the long and mm. long history of, of states, um, and and obviously, what what we're what we're in now is much is much worse, though, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things I want to think about this this how we imagine capitalism to go back to that point is really in this very very quantitative way of like taking stock like what is there in the world mm. you know if you think about all the stuff that there is like land you know resources you know there's always this kind of question of like when we think about um how we might want to live differently or better you know and and, and often there's a kind of knee jerk worry that we're going to end up in a primitivism like suddenly everything that's been you know invented or made will, will disappear and we'll all be in fields and we'll all be really cold and you know we won't know, we won't know how to 
feed or you know survive and in a way of course capital creates the conditions for the possibility of that because you know the original project of enclosures is precisely to prevent people from living sustainably so it's not like an illegitimate fear but at the same time you know and this is where i do go along with accelerationist projects you know to some extent because in a way it is starting from as marx did you know what is there like mm. there is this technology there are these factories there are you know there's an immense amount of stuff but there's also the stuff that we don't see you know, whether it be the wealth, you know, that people hoard, whether it be, you know, think about how secret and private and hidden the ruling class is ever increasingly. Yeah. You know, where, where you know, they have everything, but where, like, <laughs> you know, they hide. And I think, so we have to imagine what it is we can't see. Just as Marx talked about the hidden, uh, you know, abode of production, that which capital won't let you see. Mm. And I'm really interested in how we imagine that in order that we can quantify it and then redistribute it in the communist way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's an, an interesting division here between, um, you know, the, the strategic, uh, uh, you know, use of kind of social democratic uh, sentiment or, or politics of the kind of, you know, it, which could even even be as soft as someone like, you know, Varoufakis saying, oh, well, you know, you have to stabilise capitalism in order to overthrow it, um, mm. as opposed to the kind of, you know, the more explicit, uh, oh, making peace with capitalism and actually, you know, the, the, the social democratic promise that has never arrived actually can be done. We can actually make capitalism fair and just and so on, mm -hmm. which I don't, I don't think either of us would <laughs> necessarily have time for, although it's a, a, a nice fantasy. Um, just, just on that question of uh, the relationship between, because I think I think the political problem or the political economic problem um, for us, for the entire left, really, um, has to do with the the, the tension between um, that kind of the, the, the temptation to a nation state based Keynesianism or kind of social democracy um, with hard borders, um, and you know, in the context and as part of and as part of a global system of capitalism, right, which relies on the segmentation between nation states in order to carry out global operations. So tax differentiation, differentiation in, uh, in, in, in you know in in labour laws between states. This this relies on on this on, on exactly this kind of thing, and so so that seems to me to be a, an important and very difficult question to answer, right? So Wolfgang Strake um, mm -hmm. talks about you know he, he kind of advocates this sort of the breakup of uh you know any kind of uh internationalist project in in favor of kind of a hard bordered um but much more kind of uh regulated capitalism um my sense is that, that that there's something very dangerous about that and um, particularly in the context of as you say um you know the, the, the flows of migration and it's it, you know i think it's really i think it is actually it's not explicit at the moment but it is a, a kind of key fault line on on the left um, throughout Europe and you know it, it doesn't seem to me that there is actually necessarily the argument is moving forward on that um, let's talk about the state let's talk about the state because um, you know as we're talking about it I think it, it, you know it seems to me that it's you know that, that it, in some ways is the kind of great unanswered question of left theory in some ways right is that like actually you know, its nature, its derivation, its function, um, you know, whether it's an instrument that can be taken over and used by the left, you know, whether it's a permanent structure of violence that administers um, property relations, you know, whether it's kind of autonomous of capitalism, what that autonomy means, and whether it's ultimately kind of a, a, an excrescence of the commodity form. Um, so what is the, what do you think is the best way of thinking about the state? So you, I, and I mean this in, in the sense that, like, you know, it, you know it, not necessarily having to describe its, its evolution from the ancient Roman Republic or something. But, you know, when you think of the state, what's the, the first 
and most accessible analytical frame? I think the question of violence is the first one. In in a way, you know, whether we talk about the state's monopoly on violence and, you know, or whether we talk about, you know, empirical examples of, of how that works in practice, you know, whether it be police officers never getting prosecuted for killing people in custody, what whatnot, you know, like there are there are different levels of this discussion about violence in the state. Um but I think, you know, if we, we think back to, to Hobbes and so on in this model of, of sovereignty, that in in a sense that's that seems to me the baseline, really, um, in in order of how we think about it. But, of course, if we think about it through the history of law and the development of law, thinking about the development of contract law, for example, and the way in which the state and capital then, you know, as you say, kind of are locked in, you know, this is about preserving uh, the property rights of the of the, of the ruling of bourgeoisie, really, at least, and often against the aristocracy. Mm, so, you know, mm. the whole point about habeas corpus is that, you know, you can't just, uh, as a king, put me in, in a tower. You know, I need to be there and be mm-hmm. on trial and... Um, you know, so you have those kind of in, in those class battles between different aspects of the ruling class, or whatever we want to say as well, that cons- are constitutive of a certain kind of bourgeois universalism, or at least a fantasy of law, uh, of the rule of law. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is it's very hard to kind of imagine, and, and and I think the thing is, you know, once we start thinking about about capital. Then we sometimes forget the state. Once we start thinking about the state, we sometimes forget about capital. And in a way, that's the. It's if there is a point to what we're talking about. For me, it's sort of that. Yeah. It's like it's precisely making sure that we don't forget mm-hmm. one or the mm-hmm. other. And I think this this becomes really really important when we're thinking about the refugee crisis, for example. You know, and we're thinking about a communist internationalism, which is completely really mainly absent in the mm-hmm. way in which this whole um, you know thinking about how to to you know, uh, be responsible for the refugee crisis, you know, not only in terms of what our countries have done in our names in, I hate that phrase, but, you know, who, you know, the wars conducted yeah. um, overseas, uh, not only in terms of kind of like rapacious capital and the kind of theft of land, not only in terms of climate change, um, but also in terms of maybe the, this moral responsibility, like by virtue of being contingently a human being born in this particular country, what do we owe mm. other people who, you know, through no fault of their own and in fact probably through our fault in a sense, are being punished, you know, contingently. And and so it's that kind of like negative universalism of that kind of communist internationalism that I think, you know, is sort of missing a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, we, it's, it's, yeah, that question about what you, what you can do, but on what basis are you doing it? You know, as opposed to, I don't know, avoiding thinking about moral responsibility um, in a way. Um, and I think that that question of the state is becoming kind of more and more important, like, as you say, where the hard borders model with the streak and, and you know, that idea. And I think we we are heading perhaps more and more to that. You know, if Europe breaks up in the wake of Brexit, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. But, you know, what we're going to have perhaps is stuff like universal basic income as a proposal, but it's not going to be a leftist progressive project. You know, it's a very ambivalent uh, idea in any case. Um, but it's going to be nation states like saying, well, our citizens, it already mm-hmm. happens, you know, in some places, yeah. Norway yeah. and so on. You know, we, we will give our citizens UBI, like, yeah. but, we, but we'll close the borders, yeah. you know, and it will be a right wing, you know, sort of state bound project. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, I, I agree. And it seems to me that, that, that one of the, you know, one of the solutions to, 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 uh, capitals disquiet about Brexit in particular, I mean, it's a tangent, but um, it plays, it, I think it underlines the point, is that, you know, y- you can allow, um, say, frictionless 
uh, borders only by stepping up the surveillance power of the state massively. Um, you know, you can you can uh, you know you can solve you know border problems in Ireland only by you know massively. Uh, you know, uh, uh, enhancing the surveillance powers. And, and in fact, also the hostile environment, this is a very famous phrase of Theresa May, is about creating a hostile environment for migrants in the United Kingdom. And, the, the, you know, this is my sense of what, you know, they're intending to do is, you know, rely on kind of technological uh, forms of surveillance, which is, you know, the actually existing <laughs> technological power of the state, um, you know, to, 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 to enable... Uh, you know, uh, the bearers of capital to to continue uh, largely unimpeded. Now, I don't think necessarily it will work, but I think it's telling that that's the instinctive um, response of the state. Uh, and it's the instinctive response of the British state to, to deal with something like Brexit. Um, Hobbes, I think, is a really interesting way into thinking about particularly what it means to think about um, both state and capital in the form of images. And there's a very famous you know to frontispiece to Hobbes's Leviathan which um if, if listeners don't know it's very easily found on the internet but it, it portrays uh the sovereign the king as uh looming massively over this kind of uh you know urban environment and then the countryside behind it um, and the king is actually the king is facing out towards the reader and then the king's body is actually made up of all these little little people with their backs turned to the reader and facing towards him so his entire body is made up of these these kind of people and this is you know this was you know the frontispiece was almost certainly made with Hobbes's kind of close consultation and he holds the the sovereign this kind of great monstrous sovereign uh holds in one hand a sword and in one hand a crozier uh, bishop's staff um, so Hobbes advocates this kind of first secularised account of the emergence of the state and the sovereign, and he does it through the form of this, this contract in which individuals give up certain rights in order to live in a society with less violence, less mistrust, and thus accord the sovereign, uh, you know, which is a monarch in Hobbes, but it doesn't have to be, um, uh, pretty broad powers, um, in fact, almost universal powers, and a very kind of um, uh, extensive obligation on the part um, of citizens, obligations of obedience um, uh, on the part of the ruled. So the sovereign, in Hobbes's word, words, is a mortal god. Um, so, so this kind of I- iconic image, you know, becomes you know the, the, the go-to image of, of the state in particular. I guess, you know, you know, and I think it has continually, un- you know, it's so. Uh, uh, so striking an image that it becomes, you know, the basis of the way in which people think about politics. But, you know, it does occur to me that there is something that Hobbes does, which, uh, you know, I think can be usefully attacked from, you know, in, in kind of thinking about opposition to, to this kind of view of the state or this kind of view of kind of obligation and, and this view of sovereignty, um, which is about his kind of political anthropology, right? So he He's he's very much into this this account of the individual, um, and and his account of the individual is at, at, at the root of a lot of you know contemporary accounts of the political. Right, so the individual human being is is in the state of nature, famously violent and brutal, and uh, you know and 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 only restrained, but um, that 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 state is only restrained by the entry into social contract and the emergence of a sovereign power. So for Hobbes, is, for Hobbes, the state is kind of this arbitrary, um, artificial. Uh, thing that there's nothing necessary or inevitable about it, which I think is good and a useful way to think about it. It's it's really kind of scandalous that you know that that, he, that this occurs to him and, and it's worked out in the way it is. Um, 
and his sense of why you should submit to authorities based on like this this sense of how endangered order and peace can become um you know, for historical reasons um if you don't i wonder though if there's something that can be opposed to it by by resurrecting an older account of what it means to be human um which is aristotle's which is to say that human being is a zoon politicon a political uh life form a political being and that actually sociality uh and and the need to politically interact is fundamental to the human being it's not um it's it's it can't you know, it's not something that, that occurs after a kind of... Uh, I mean, unless you're a woman or a slave, of course. Yes, well, but... exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to return to Aristotle. <laughs> I don't want to return to the Greek polis at all. I don't think the polis, I don't think the Greek city-state is the necessary outcome of human political sociality. But I think maybe there's something that, that can be recovered, um, you know, w- w- which allows us to think uh, more interestingly about group political subjectivities yeah no no, i mean i think i think that's right and i think you know i mean hobbes is is fascinating um and you know obviously has been read you know often as a sort of defender of absolutism and tyranny but also there are some strangely liberal elements of hobbes too it's very you know curious and and actually when he talks about the state of nature there's actually he talks about equality that actually we there's a strange kind of you know if you want to talk about sort of political anthropology that his image of anthropology, although it is, of course, uh, every every man for himself, man is a wolf to man, you know, life is nasty, brutish and short, or nasty, British and short, as I <laughs> say. But, the, you know, the, but actually it's it's because you have all the rights in a certain sense. You can use your intelligence to survive. You can use your brute force to survive. And even so, even though there's a kind of differentiation at the level of who, how one can survive, and of course, we might query the fact that this uh, idea of the lone person, why is that the model? You know, why not the mother and the child, for mm-hmm. example? Why not images of cooperation? Like we know anthropologically that, you know, vast tracts of human history have been very cooperative. You know, of course, it's much, you know, you get a lot more done and, you know, far fewer people die when you work together. You know, it, it might be uh, less historically dramatic from the standpoint of writing down events. But you know, it, it's 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 clearly a deep part of uh, human anthropology. You know, anthropological history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of things going on there, I suppose. But I mean, I think the Aristotle point, yeah, is is an important one. But I think, and one thing that we we miss perhaps is uh, an idea of, of of flourishing, of a kind mm. of politics as a sort of yeah central collective aspect um, of of our lives, and but. Um, I mean, I don't think you need Aristotle to do it. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just that he's in—he's kind of polemicising against Aristotle at various points. I think. Um, yeah, for sure. And I mean, one thing I suppose that that is important in Hobbes that we we retain, whether we think we're Hobbesian or not, or is is the kind of the idea of of, of scarcity, if you like, mm. and of fear, and you know that of course what you do when you transfer your rights, you know, you you give up, you do give up your right to self-defence, but it's actually a transfer of your right of self-defence to the sovereign who then takes on that responsibility for you. So the idea that you don't have to defend yourself, the state will protect you. Um, And of course, uh, you know, Hobbes says, well, if you are being attacked, you can still self-defend yourself if the state don't turn up in time, right? But so it's it's a very, very odd model. But, But of course, it's it depends upon this uh, idea of awe mm, and the mm. fact that you are in, you know, this state of awe the mort- to the mortal God. And, and awe is this weird combination of fear and admiration. Yeah, yeah. 
and and that and but everybody has to be kind of part of it and and obviously you're extremely punished in Hobbes's image if you break the the contract mm-hmm. uh, in many ways and i suppose hobbes's model of awe depends upon um an image of scarcity and i think this is the one of the things that governments ever since are all, <laughs> always um, push and it's an ideological fantasy that there isn't enough stuff, there isn't enough land, there aren't enough resources. You know that you know you'll need protection because people will want to steal what little mm-hmm, you have, mm-hmm. for example. And it's a very, very mobilising force. And there's some interesting research lately about political position and fear. So they found that people who, who are generally quite fearful tend to be quite right wing because they have a much more hostile image of the world that they feel that they're, you know, under threat, that their their stuff is going to be taken, their bodies are going to be attacked, you know. And it's it's not that that doesn't happen. It, it It's that how that kind of fear is then mobilised, you know, and of course we saw this in Trump and, and you know, many other yeah, yeah. historical instances. So, I mean, I'm quite interested in this, how, how do you defeat that fear, undermine that fear, but then also this quantitative project about, well, what is that like? All the resources we have, you know, the scarcity narrative, of course, is the one that, uh, you know, um, completely mobilises uh, a right-wing and media fear of, you know, Benefits, grandeurs, mm-hmm. refugees, you know, women taking job, you know, <laughs> it's always been mobilised that there isn't enough. Yeah. It's fantasy that there isn't enough. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it's it's striking that, that you mentioned fear because it's so much a part of, I think, the modern state as well. And the, the, the sense of, you know, I mean, the, the, that actually that frontispiece to Hobbes has at the top a quote from from Job, um, you know, he who is, you know, the, there is there is no one earth, on earth like him. And the second part of that that's not on the front page is, he who is made without fear, uh, he who is without fear, because it's it, for Hobbes. It's like that is the universal condition, um, you know. And I, I think the thing we can learn from 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 him historically is to say that okay, Hobbes was born at the time the Armada was sailing against Britain. He lived through the Civil War. Um, you know, the, the the one of the after effects of huge political instability and violence is to drive people. Um, in that direction. That's one of the, the the things that I find very difficult to think about in terms of political strategy, that instability drives people towards forms of security. So how you think about security in a way that isn't to do with kind of having enough guns to shoot people, um, whether you can make an argument about security that isn't uh, related to, to a monopoly on violence, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, and I think it would be around issues you know, questions of cooperation and trust. But those things are extremely hard to build once you've already set up a very hostile thing. And I suppose, you know, one thing we should perhaps think about in relation to somebody like Edmund Burke and his kind of, you know, very, very, again, it's hugely influential critique of the French Revolution and, you know, the fear that it would spread to Britain in, you know, in 1790, writes that, uh, you know, that book. And and the the worry is that there's something dangerous about metaphysical ideas mm. like equality and universalism mm. and that what you need instead is this kind of very you know and, and he was Thatcher's favorite also <laughs> you know amongst them that that you need this kind of uh the people who've always been in charge to carry on mm. you know this kind mm. of social conservatism and political conservatism that the law should be made in very little steps that you yeah. don't have this dramatic um tra- transformation into social arrangements because you get the terror right and then you know, this is one of the kind of the, the questions that comes back to the sort of decapitalism thing. If we're thinking about, mm. you know, the relationship between a very fast kind of uh, overturning um, of a ruling order, and then you know the, the sort of the decapitation mm. element of the terror in the French French Revolution, and you know why is it that 
what what is it about that is it the kind of mechanization of death is it the kind of the speed you know the the rapidity of killing one's enemy but then the the rolling uh way in which your enemy you know you become the enemy right so to that flip you know and i think this social media is like this social media is like the french that that bit the terror bit (laughs) (laughs) it's not any of the good bits beforehand no i mean i I think i think this is yeah i mean my my question in, in one sense is what it means when you decapitate the sovereign right yeah um and and you know the problem you know the problem to overcome is 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 that sense of, of if, if the sovereign is at the center of a political order then once the the head is cut off the whole body kind of decomposes or kind of uh, turns in on itself and you have this kind of um you know it, it, you know the the problem of the 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 yeah the Birkin problem of the armed doctrine uh being actually a kind of uh, endlessly rapacious maw that just devours and devours and devours, and, and actually this this is it's now such a cliche that 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 people talk about any kind of major political change in that way, um, you know, and and it strikes me that there are a couple of things here. One is that there's like an, that just a very old way of thinking about you know political communities as bodies, yeah, which I think um, is comes you know gets much kind of more fundamental in in that you know. The, the question, the need to personify uh, abstract forces and to think, and that part of political thinking is thinking about people as bearers of kind of abstract social forces. Now, it might be a king, but it might also be a capitalist. Marx talks about, um, you know, and in another way, right, he says, I don't want to talk about the individual capitalists. Yeah. I want to talk them about them as bearers of kind of systemat- systemic um, so- social forces. Um, so so why, why is there that persistent need to personify? Well, I mean, it's a bigger human need... You know, I mean, if you think about religion, you know, <laughs> and obviously Hobbes skirts dangerously close to a kind of, you know, subsumption of religion mm. into into the state yeah. power, you know, and then, you know, he's almost, well, <laughs> possibly decapitated for, for saying this, but, you know, protected by his friends. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's very obvious. But I think that even if we think about the, go back to the frontispiece, you know, if you, if we, if you decapitate the sovereign, the bodies are still alive. The mm. individual, of the, the bodies of the multitude, they still have their heads. It's not that the body is, will die without the head. I mean, that's Hobbes, you know, that's the fantasy yeah. in a certain, or that's the, the one way of thinking about it. But even from the standpoint of the own image, that wouldn't be how it, you mm-hmm. know, that wouldn't work. The bodies are of the multitude are intact, both collectively and individually. And of course, that would then be go back to the state of nature in Hobbes's idea, in which you know people would uh, turn on one another. Um, and yeah, so I, I and I, th- I think yeah, there has to be enough confidence in thinking about what a uh, a non hierarchical social arrangement mm-hmm. would look like. You know, without sort of domination. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, and of course, this is sort of fantastical, you know, of course, from a psychoanalytic perspective, you're never going to get rid of aggression. It's not to say that, you know, people will suddenly become, you know, peaceable, mm-hmm. sort of um, thoughtful individuals. That's, that's not the kind of issue. There'll always be disparities of desire, questions of lack, questions mm-hmm. of aggression, um, and so on. But there are there are clearly different ways of organising them. And, and, and the way that we... Have, you know the way that it's it's uh, I don't know uh, arranged now is is so bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. It's so yeah. I mean, I, I guess my 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 sense is, and maybe it comes back to you know the, the, these questions of, of, of violence. You know, we've been talking about sovereignty, and, and sovereignty can be mobilised in lots of reactionary ways. I mean, we live in a country that has done that very recently. 
Um, but, but you know, if mounting an assault on this kind of monstrously unified political entity, you know, i.e. sovereign capitalist state, you know, are there ways of kind of mounting a, a kind of counter-sovereignty, right? I mean, that, that, that to me is an interesting political question. I think it's at play throughout the world at the moment. Um, I, I think it's dangerous, but at the same time, I think about the experiences of actually being part of a large mass of politicised people in a, during a political act, with a demonstration mm-hmm. or uh, direct action or whatever. And my sense there is that actually there is, um, among that kind of experience of, of collectivity, a, a kind of possible counter-sovereignty. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, in, you know, one of the interesting things that Hobbes says is a permanent risk is is rhetoric. And then you have this kind of question of charisma and leaders and, you know, I mean... Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to think about if Aaron were prime minister or something, you know, like, you know, but you can't ever kind of eliminate even this sort of thinking like collectivity and that that memory of a kind of like group infusion, as Sartre would say. So we break out of seriality, we Mm. stop regarding the other as an obstacle and we have a shared project. And this is, you know, what what Sartre is talking about, the critique of dialectical reason and where he's trying to give, if you like, a sort of very, uh, yeah, social ontological, um, critical description of the possibility of revolt or the possibility mm-hmm. of politics you know how is it possible that people storm the Bastille how is it possible that people in the bus queue you know get angry stop uh, seeing the other in an atomized individual way and see each other as part of a group and march to the bus headquarters to complain that there are no buses or something you know and he, he mm. looks at it at every different kind of level including like the book group you know never yeah. underestimate the revolutionary potential of, a, of an elderly women's book group says Sartre um you know, and there's something, yeah, that that sort of thinking is incredibly important, um, you know, because it's possible, because it mm. had been possible. And it's that kind of future perfect way. It will have been the case, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, but then how that question of, of, of charisma and we know, you know, from the student movement, we know from thinking about how difficult these things and how, how you know, and Sartre says too, you know, the, the, the these things dissolve, you know, these things ossify, mm. they become kind of institutions um, or they become sort of tyrannies or there's kind of treachery, people betray one another. You know, it, it's 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 very, very hard to have a kind of, um, it, it, especially if the everything around is, is still in that model of mm. scarcity and seriality. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, how yeah. do you actually preserve right, this the moment kind of, of limitations of any any attempt to, to just kind of. Uh, engaging in politics is purely prefigurative, or the, the, yeah. You know. um, I mean, I think that that does take me on nicely to, to one of the other resonances that I was talking about at the top of the show is is that 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 question of you know. So uh, I think there's a pretty persuasive case to make that a good portion of kind of technologically driven left do take on a kind of capitalist rationality, a kind of instrumental reason, uh, and that there is often a kind of crucial moment of hand-waving in the middle of, of the argument, which is about just things becoming communist. Um, so one of the ways I read the, you know, the term decapitalism is exactly you know, that, that, that uh, desire not to take on that, those forms of instrumental reason, but, but look at um, you know, a, 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 different, you know, a, different, a different kind of politics, one that is perhaps not um, so in love with it, 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 its kind of Promethean potential, um, but uh, and it doesn't see technology as a way through politics, um, but nor is it regressive. Um, so, so my question: We know what, say, decarbonisation looks like, but what would decapitalization look like? Yeah, well, I suppose partly I was thinking about the Ivan Illich idea of de-schooling and this idea that actually you have all these structures of education, um, but they're 
sort of forms of uh, ideological in, you know indoctrination as well as kind of mm. possible um liberation and so that in a sense you have to unlearn various things so yeah so it's partly i suppose about you know trying to think about how we might step back from our you know I don't know, the manipulability of capitalism, you know, the construction of uh, unnecessary desires, for example. Um, you can see that, think of that in terms of consumerism, but also in the way in which we relate to one another. You know, if we start treating each other in a very instrumental way, uh, you know, all the time, you know, that kind of... Um, so it was, in a sense, yeah, taking a step back, not being, as you say, like in love with, with capital's image of itself. Um, and I suppose, yeah, just sort of, I, I think maybe it's thinking about in terms of like, decomposition like decomposing something yeah. so taking apart what what is there so again i keep coming back to this but you know taking stock of the resource taking so like if we really redistributed everything you know if we gave people what they needed not what they want but what they need and what people need is different you know the, i mean the whole point of the you know from each according to his ability to each according to his need is to recognize the different needs it's not to subsume everyone to some sort of universal fantasy of the the human you know it's in fact to precisely recognize difference mm -hmm. i think you know and people will need different things um but we've, we're so far away i think from thinking about what that that need is and and if we if we started to think about in terms of i don't know uh you know elimination eliminating private property and kind of redistributing land you know there's more than enough for people and it's doing that in the context of climate change and the and the global climate crisis you know it's a very very like difficult thing but um most of the world, a lot of the world live in a way that is far more sustainable than the west obviously the west is a death cult there's no doubt about it you know and this you know when we think about <laughs> images of death and, 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 you know, the skull and decapitation, I suppose one of the other things about this is this question of representation mm. and not just how we represent capital, but how we think about representation as, as uh, in total and these kind of violent images that we kind of, I don't know, fetishize, I suppose. Um, so not only what we can't see in terms of who owns what, the priv you know, the privacy and the hiddenness of wealth, um, but also the damage that we do when we're kind of constantly... Um, I don't know, confronting ourselves with, with, with images that damage us. It's a bit of a strange point, and I suppose being thinking about iconoclasm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and different methods of thinking about images um, than, than kind of Western, Western ways of dealing with death and skulls and <laughs> so on. Um, but that aside, I suppose, you know, imagine, yeah, de so decapitalism seems like if it means anything at all, and I'm not necessarily claiming it does, it's kind of like just a portmanteau that... I, I thought might be sort of fun almost uh -huh. in a way. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it is. And I think, I think, I think the, the question that, that, that unites us is, is, is alienation. I mean, you mentioned Sartre and, and, and that question to me is, is actually very difficult. We don't talk about it a lot, but what actually disalienation would look like. Now, obviously, yeah. it's, it's kind of very difficult to talk about what it would look like. Um, but but the, its absence as a critical term, as a term of kind of critical argument, seems odd to me, particularly in an era in which, um, you know, a kind of screen-driven capitalism is is very, very present, particularly in the capitalist heartlands, that, that this is, you know, not only does it have excellent kind of potentials for sociability, but it has extremely destructive um, and extremely kind of intimate forms of alienation tied to it. Um, and, and that seems to me, you know, the, you know, one of the paradoxes here is, you know, the things that enable us 
um, to, to, to maybe go forward and think in, in these ways uh, are also kind of poisonous. In, in, yeah, well. and, and again, I think, you know, there's a kind of work, sometimes an over-concern that you're being moralistic if you say, if you talk about something like alienation, you know, mm-hmm. alienation is like, you know, it's of course on multiple fronts, you know, the way in which Marx presents it, you know, it's from, from your fellow man, it's from your product, it's from humanity as a whole, it's from the structure relation of your, you know, work and labour and, you know, many other things as well. And I, you know, but something like, some, I don't know, the instrumentalization of others, which is, you know, treating people as, as things and not as, as, as people, um, you know, and the whole kind of pro- problem and question of the commodity form seems to reach a kind of fever pitch when you have uh, zero ties of loyalties. I don't know, something like dating apps. I mean, I, I, I don't use them because in my day, you just went to the pub and got drunk and got off with the person next to you and then went out with them for like four years or something. <laughs> and that was that was you know, how you got together with somebody. And so this this world, you know, and of course I'm getting older and part of this is like a sort of terror and a fear. When I'm really tired, some of this stuff makes me feel really frightened, you yeah, know, yeah. when I think about these, you know. And so in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out of ignorance because I, I don't know about them, but it seems to me... Like quantification and self-representation. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, and of course we, of course we're all complicit, blah, blah, blah. But... You know, that it may be that those things are destructive in ways that we didn't think they were or we didn't quite consider, you know, and there's nothing perhaps inevitable about them mm-hmm, also. Like mm-hmm, we have to mm-hmm. remember that, that, you know, this technological uh, development, if you like, um, is is could be, uh, I don't know, could have gone different ways yes, or, you yes, know, still yes. can. Well, and... the early internet was, you know, very, yeah. very different in, in conception to, to the contemporary internet. I think that's, I think, I think that's true. And I think that should be an uncontroversial point. Um, I mean, I guess the other, the resonance here is, is also, you know, to specifically, um, and I wanted to go into it because I think it's, it, it ties some of this stuff together, is the act of beheading, right? And this is one of the obscene, uh, you know the, these kind of obscene uh, images, which 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 again are are kind of outside of polite discourse. Um, you know the the the, um, the the rich hide themselves, the ruling class hide themselves, but so too are hidden kind of these these kind of hugely um, violent uh, images, which are are part of our everyday. I mean the 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 where people go to with beheading now are these kind of ISIS propaganda videos um, but obviously it does have that resonance with 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 the guillotine with the kind of highly rational instrument of state terror but also a great leveler um you know a symbol of an act of great leveling um there are also myths of beheading i guess i'm interested in in that question you know there is also a long history of kind of um uh relations to revolutionary violence which are are always i think more complicated than people make them out to be i mean you have um, you know, the, the, you know, there is a kind of catharsis in a terrible act, but also the recognition that that these acts of kind of terrible violence, um, while they may be kind of extra political forces that can overturn the political or institute great change in them, uh, are also uh, or, or may even be acts of disalienation. Right, this is one of the things that Franz Fanon um, so, sort of suggests. Um, they also are in themselves insufficient and can contain terrible, terrible potentials within themselves so so you know the you know the question with decapitalism for me is is that there is this this image of kind of terrible potent and perhaps quite dangerous violence lurking within it um how does that relate to the kind of more emancipatory um image of, of a decapitalism yeah i suppose one thing you know i've been thinking about is lots of the kind of feminist um approaches to beheading and and, and decapitation so looking at um Siksu and christeva in particular who've written about this at length and thinking about you know so Siksu talks about uh freud's 
uh, use of Medusa as this image of, of, of castration, you know, and the kind of the fear of castration. And women are, are always already in the position of being having been castrated. So what would it mean to start from that kind of position of not having a head in the first place, if you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, which is quite a strange thing to think about, but obviously it relates a little bit to Asifal and like these images from Bataille and this, you know, what does it mean to have uh, a politics that d doesn't begin with the Hobbes sovereign head, but maybe just with the body? Mm -hmm. um, uh, something like this, as well as um, Chris Davis' work, uh, thinking about uh, beheading in the history of art um, and... Yeah, I mean, the, that image that you used for the show today of the Gentileschi, the mm -hmm. Judith and Holofern with the decapitation, you know, and this kind of has been read often as a kind of feminist act of revenge because Gentileschi was raped by her art tutor, Tassie, and, you know, that there's something in that image of the kind of clinical uh, severing of the man's head that this is kind of a, you know, possible re revenge as well as one of the most brilliant paintings ever mm. ever made, right? So, and she's such a, you know, fan fascinating uh, figure as an artist. And so I suppose there's something about that. And then I was thinking about this kind of women's heads that don't have bodies. So like in WR, Mysteries of the Organism, the Makaveyev, the, the kind of, so where the women represent Yugoslavia and the uh, Soviet ice skater decapitates them and they carry on speaking yeah, after death. Yeah. And then figures like Winnie in Beckett's Happy Days, where she's buried up to her neck in the final thing. Mm -hmm. She can't even reach the gun mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to to end it all, but it's just a head. And, you know, and there's lots of heads in Beckett in that way. And so I've been thinking about, yeah, these kind of, what would the politics of castration be like if you started from the headless body or the bodiless head as it were from like a feminist point of view you know and and maybe there's something um you know and, and I, I suppose one thing i really wanted to say about the 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 kind of hypocrisy around violent images today like if you think about the amount of people who are paid like in the philippines and elsewhere to filter violent images on something like facebook and they have to see images of beheading you know uh, decapitation child abuse animal abuse and so on and literally you know hours and hours and hours mm. a day and they they filter out so that in order for us to see the the lovely cat pictures you know someone yeah, else has yeah. to see the decapitation yeah. You know, and that both in the West, we had this idea that you can watch anything and take anything and we're hard and there's no censorship and blah, blah, blah. We're in love with horror and whatnot. But actually, it's kind of, you know, it's it's sort of, uh, you know, there's a kind of inequality of image viewing as well. Like who has to see the really horrible stuff? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think I think maybe one of the, the, the potentials here with this kind of almost unthinkable and very Im impolite right and I, I always like impoliteness in politics i think it's a good thing um it, 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 you know the the question of decapitalism is i whose head do you chop off and yeah. not of course i'm suggesting that that is what i'm going to go and do but it, it does anchor the political and actual people i mean, there are people who run the show there are beneficiaries uh, at the same time you know of course we've spent a lot of the 20th century saying look capital is a system of social relations you can't destroy it by individual acts of terror that's true but there are people who benefit from it. I mean, you know, I, I, Rupert Murdoch is safe so $66 billion of... And he is uh, mortal. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Although he doesn't seem to be shuffling off the mortal coil no. anytime soon, which is a, <laughs> unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so so I guess my, my sort of final question here, you know, two, barely two minutes left, is, is, is you know, uh, how where this kind of decapitalist approach is most useful when thinking about um you know the contemporary politics and the contemporary uh world scene yeah i think it, for, for me it would be on the repressive state you know mm. it's it's the violent dimension of the ruling class well you know it's a, 
That's the problem, though. I'm really, <laughs> really saying the, the problem in a way because it's, of course, it's not just the, you know, police and courts and prisons, although that's, you know, absolutely crucial. But it's the violence of capital itself, you know, it, it, not not just, uh, you know, and also it's the, the people who don't have to do the violence themselves, but have it done on their behalf. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. again, that violence we don't see that help happens yeah. elsewhere. Um, yeah, it's. We have to think about both what we can see and both what we can't. <laughs> that is, uh, I think, an excellent place to leave it. Um, uh, yes, capital and state interwoven uh, like two uh, maleficent spirits that leap forth from uh, uh, from from the apple of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> Nina Power, thank you very much for Thanks, joining James. me this week. This has been uh, Novara FM. We will return at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.